Welcome to Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. And look, we're already giggling because we're doing this as a video for the first time. If you're looking at the video, you know that that's what we're doing. If you're listening to the audio version, uh, then, hey, you should go and have a look at our YouTube channel. I'm assuming I'm going to put it on the YouTube channel. That's our new and fun and whatever this is. Nick Healy is back. Nick, how are you? I'm really well. I, I've got to ask, why are we doing this as a video? Did you just decide that there was an underrepresentation of middle-aged white men on tech videos these days? On, on YouTube in particular, that's right. Yeah, look, it's funny. A lot has changed. I mean, right, it's been about a year since the two of us it actually talked on Bytesite. But, yeah, it kind of hit me that, uh, well, actually, it wasn't long after we last caught up last year that a lot of stuff started to change for the way we run Bytesite. We'll get into a bit of that shortly. But it really is then thinking about how we experiment a bit more with the editorial side of stuff and have a bit more fun with it and explore some of these kinds of video formats. I think right now the reason we're only really recording it is in the name of working out what the hell we're doing whereas i think over time it might be the kind of thing where it's more about flicking on the live stream side of what uh, a service like Streamyard can do so then you can have a bit of interaction with people while you're you know having a chat and stuff like that hey don't get me wrong i'm very excited uh, to see just how nice your studio setup is compared to my tiny dank dark room with a bunch of toys on some shelves and a ring light I got from Coles for $10. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, you you look like you're ready to participate in some sort of, I don't know, uh, like, uh, yeah, uh, if if you were to have a great chat in your you dark room. You can say Unabomber. Everyone knows that's where you're going. If no, you I was going with like a Rob Zombie kind of a vibe there where I think, you know, the two of you could just like headbang out about something <laughs> there in your darkly lit room. Hey, I forgot to ask about rules. Am I allowed to have a drink while we're doing this? Oh, yes, sure. Yes, that's fine. That's no worries at all. Um, yeah, look, if you've never tuned in before, I don't know what you're doing here right at this moment, but um, it's a weird one to come in on. But I'm Seamus Byrne. I run Byteside. This is Nick Healy. He's a longtime tech journalist and nowadays a breakfast radio presenter. And we are catching up to talk about tech and digital culture and nerd news and things that interest us. Mostly this show is about interviewing really fascinating people who are doing amazing things uh, through technology and science and things like that. And that's part of why I was like, hey, at least if I catch up with Nick first, I can explain that out loud when really interesting other people, because we are interesting. I'm not getting that wrong. Um, but there are a number of guests that are coming up soon and getting a good rhythm going. And then in between cool guests, one of my thoughts is that, of course, we'll then keep having catch-ups now and then to talk about just the wider sense of news and and fun things that are going on around the internet for our own amusement and hopefully the amusement of a few listeners slash viewers. Also, it's an auspicious day for us to be chatting again. Um, I just want to say a big congratulations uh, and a very happy World Giraffe Day to you. World Giraffe Day. World Giraffe Oh, look... I, you know, in fact, we should probably put ourselves slightly out of frame 
just just in the name of, of <laughs> you jest, but we celebrate in Dubbo. We celebrate World Giraffe Day hard. We had a baby. Oh, I bet you do. Taronga Western Plains Zoo had a baby giraffe born just Saturday weekend, just gone. So it's a very big day for the zoo. He was shown off for the first time. So young, he doesn't have a name yet. Oh wow. Okay, yeah, that is actually that's pretty impressive then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, giraffes are awesome. Uh, I seem to remember seeing a, a cool meme video recently where uh, there was a young boy feeding a giraffe and he refused to let go of the, like, leafy thing that he'd handed it. And so, of course, the giraffe just lifts the child off the ground <laughs> and the parents grab the legs and almost in that Homer style, it's like they're just kind of screaming, let go of the branch. No, never. Never. We should say also it's solstice. It is the shortest day of the year uh, in the Southern Hemisphere where we are. So day of the tallest animal, day of the shortest year, it all works out. It's, it's very opposite in its own weird way. Yeah. Well, that's it. Maybe maybe World Draft Day originates in the Northern Hemisphere where it was the longest day and the longest necked animal all at once. It you know, makes lots of sense. Look, there's been news and things. Let's see. What did I talk about? So I've mentioned... We as Bite Side, that being me and staff, not Nick, who's who's no. just a, a lovely person who comes and hangs out from time to time. Um, that we're mostly a content studio now, so we're actually producing a lot Ooh. of uh, podcasts and articles and case studies and things for both other media outlets and for companies and for different things like that. Um, so you know, that's the nice side of finding a way to make money as a business uh, and it's been part of why the editorial stuff has been pretty quiet through the first half of 2022 while we've just been betting in new routines and making sure we service clients in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're getting excited about just sort of finding the load balance and making room to just enjoy ourselves through our podcasts and newsletter a little bit more. So, you know, that's the the nice side of things. And honestly, I'm really glad that we've not been around through most of the first half of the year because the discussion would have simply been, so is Elon buying Twitter or not Um, and all that kind of jazz. And I'm glad we just haven't had to participate in it. No, I'm very glad too. In fact, so much as I'm not sure what the latest is, I I ended up muting him and muting the word Elon Musk on Twitter. (laughs) Very, very, very enjoyable. Uh, But what has actually happened? Is the end of it like he still thinks he's going to get out of it or...? So he uh, in the past week he did have his first face-to-face meeting with staff at Twitter and he in that regard uh still uh says that he is intending to finalize a purchase uh you know there's still I guess 4 or 5 months in that whole process and at the same time of course he's still shouting about the idea that he uh, believes he's been lied to by Twitter and wants out of the deal. Um, I heard uh, an interesting take which was saying that him going to have this meeting at Twitter might be part of his effort to convince the courts later on when it comes up that, you know, did you really intend to go through with it? He's like, well, look, I even had meetings with staff. You know, I was completely prepared. But then I discovered that, you know, I was lied to about key details that and, you know, and all that jazz. So that's it. I'm happy to not even worry about the speculation on it and just go, oh, we're going to see how it washes out soon enough. Uh, you know, and, we'll, and you just you just can't guess with that guy anymore. 
You can't. And look, I know we've kind of got a vague structure to the show, but I'm quite fascinated about this because I find it amazing that we are talking about a man who, you know, is the world's wealthiest man. So much money is getting invested into, you know, DeFi, um, into Web3 initiatives. And here is a man who's desperate to buy at extreme expense, probably the most Web 2.0 thing still remaining now that Facebook has become meta. Um, it's actually fascinating. And I, I find it, I find it impossible that he could be quite so stupid as to not be making some decisions around this, as opposed to just going with his gut and thinking someone was mean to me and so I need to buy the platform that they were mean to me on. Um, because he, I, I'm a little amazed that Elon Musk has not become more of a Web3 evangelist. He feels like the kind of person who would be all in on that. Yeah, and, I mean, he's good friends with... Um... Uh, Jack Dorsey, who is no longer running Twitter and who is all in on his other project, which is formerly Square, now called Block, and is all about blockchain and, you know, Web3 stuff. Uh, I suppose they were at least kind of working, you know, hard to do more in that space. Mm. Um, Yeah, look, I think it is so tricky, isn't it? Because, of course, you know, his followers are clearly super into the whole crypto scene. Um, he has, you know, loved playing with the meme side of crypto, like with, you know, Dogecoin and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, yeah, it's just such a messy space right now. And I mean, look, I think, you know, his fan base on Twitter kind of represents so much of what is crap about Twitter. <laughs> and in mm. many ways you sort of think, well, yeah, why Why does he say he loves it so much? One of the really interesting things that he actually said at that meeting uh, with uh, with staff was when he was asked about things like, you know, censorship and managing things and, and his clear desire to sort of be less censorious. One thing he was kind of saying was, you know, oh, like just why can't it just be more fun? And you're like, again, you that, that the like lack of awareness that perhaps – your version of what is fun or funny is extremely different to what other people have to put up with. <laughs> um, so, look, yeah, it's it's a messy it's a messy situation in that whole yeah argument right now. It, it kind of indicative to me um, just how confusing the whole Web three metaverse thing is at the moment. Um, you remember a few weeks ago, I was in Melbourne and I sent you a photo of a metaverse pop-up shop. Now, I'm going to assume you can do some kind of weird editing magic and show it on screen now, but if you can't, trust me, it was very, very bizarre. said something like founded 2042 or something like that. I didn't even bother walking into it um, because I just couldn't even rustle the energy to care about what they thought they were doing. But to me, that's really... It's, it's genuinely indicative of how hard it's been to get a sense of what people think metaverse and to a large degree by extension the whole web3 initiative is actually going to look like you know i know we've seen uh some interesting vr stuff come out out of meta just recently which i know you've been taking a deeper look at it you know the whole concept that meta has is that metaverse is deeper than vr and yet nothing they show us is indicating that it's any deeper than their 
you know, very habbo kind of idea of of what VR looks like. Yeah, yeah. I, it, look, it's funny when you talked about the the shop. The thing that strikes me is almost like walking into the shop, and I could almost imagine you know, the the person behind the counter having that raised eyebrow, like, "Huh? Do you get mm, it? Mm, huh? Mm, huh? Mm. <laughs> Also, founded 2042, isn't it meant to be happening now? Like, isn't the whole idea that we're talking about the metaverse now? Why do you think it would not be founded until 2042? Yes. Um, Yeah. Like, well, when you think about where the tech is at, that eternal five years from now is when it's going to get good. Maybe that's it. Maybe that is officially when it will finally get good is, okay, yep. You know, there's the the people who love messing around with this stuff. You know, it's like obviously we've talked about it plenty of times on this show. I've got a VR set up in the house. Um, but I can very much imagine based on the pace of this stuff getting better um, that we've probably got another good, you know, 10 years or so before we start to really hit that side of it when it becomes easy, light, mm. uh self-contained, uh, yeah, all those elements that do mean. And, look, that is, you know, as you sort of alluded to before, that that's one of the things that uh, Mark Zuckerberg and the, I think it's called the Reality Labs team at Meta, um, that they actually, yeah, did this really quite good walkthrough of a number of the different technologies that they've been playing with um, over the last, like, five years. Uh, in terms of what they've been testing, what they've been trying to focus on as elements that you need to make really good in order to have a great, truly like, you know, futuristic experience of what we all wish um, VR would be. And so it was quite a good presentation. Again, I'll make sure there's a link sort of somewhere to it. But, you know, what was quite cool about it was that they admitted that, you know, okay, none of these specific headsets is even like close to being sold yet (laughs) but across the kind of range that they've been playing with with each tech they've just said okay this headset that we're working on is just going to be worrying about like resolution and you know and how you can make sure that if i look at as they sort of use the example of an eye chart just saying i want to be able to look at an eye chart and read an eye chart like i could read an eye chart in an optometrist. Mm. Okay, you know, interesting. And like that's one headset working out how to make that better. And so that's including not just the resolution, but even things like improving the brightness of the backlight and things that actually they've realized is going to feed into that. You know, then another headset was all about how do we improve the optics so that you can make the depth of the uh you know the headset a lot thinner and a lot lighter and create more space to, you know, to both not not have it feel like it's kind of hanging off the front of your head. Mm. Um, But, yeah, and so then that was its own thing of using like special like, like, you know, laser polarized, like laser optics and things like this to, to kind of reduce the amount of distance it needed to go. Like then, so like all these different things that they've gone, yeah, let's just get a team to focus on each of these things in isolation and then we can start conceptualizing how that unified headset that solves all those problems at once could look. And you know, with that, they're like, 
all we've got right now is a 3D model because, you know, they're like, yeah, we're not even close to building this yet, but that's the long-term vision for where we want to get. And I kind of like that, you know, where obviously a lot of this stuff stays hidden behind the scenes. Um, I think it's great that they're not afraid to just go, yeah, you know what? Like the headsets we're selling you right now are a long way from what we think is going to be the perfect, amazing version of this. But at least it's like, yeah, let's start showing the vision for it because that at least starts to you know make us all feel a bit more like, oh, cool. They're actually, they're really working on the hard parts of this. They're not just trying to sell us whatever kind of random thing they feel like. Which is important and, and actually really interesting. I've got to say that gives me a bit more confidence in certainly where the technology is going. But to go back to something you said right at the start, getting a sense of uh, how did you put None of the headsets have been what we want from VR. But what do we want from VR? No one's answered that yet. Like reality and immersion are fantastic until they're not a particularly apposite for what you're hoping to do in VR. Um, yeah. uh, we've not, you know, we've had headsets. When did you and I first try Oculus? You know, 2012, 2013, something like that. Yeah. At a, at a PAX Australia when it was in a wool shed or wherever it was in Melbourne that <laughs> first time, uh, I used the, um, the the prototype Oculus and it looked amazing to me. But no one's shown me anything in that 10-year period that I have to do in VR. No one's given me that killer thing where I'm like, that is what I want. For the love of God, Beat Saber is probably the closest thing I've seen, and I wouldn't play it. I just enjoy watching the videos of people who do. But that's probably the closest thing I've seen to where I've gone, now that's genuinely fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really good example as well where, where like, one of the things that Beat Saber nailed was actually from the day it launched, building in a third third-person camera view that you could set mm. up in your room, like if you wanted to get fancy with it, set up that extra camera and it had that positional insight into you inside the VR and it really did. It meant as a spectacle they made it something that is, you know, really cool to watch videos of and because you're like that person is inside it, not just I'm watching their view of the VR Thing. Yeah. It's like I can see them inside this space and therefore I'm getting to see them do their cool dance moves while they carve up, you know, lightsaber stuff. Yeah, one of the things that they used as their benchmark for what they're talking about is they're calling it a visual Turing test. And, you know, they did say it's not, you know, they haven't coined that phrase. It's a phrase that's starting to kind of spread around that kind of category. And, and it's that idea of going, okay, when you put it on, you know, does it feel like you're really looking at things in a real space um you know and that's that sort of long-term goal that at least it gives the mm. researchers you know a sense of yeah you know are things properly in focus wherever you look you know and that one of those other texts that i didn't mention is literally they're working on like mechanical systems that i track where your eyes are moving and make sure that that is the part in focus right now you know and keeping up with your eyes rapid movements you know like so like it's like they're really some crazy stuff when you kind of go holy crap that's really what they feel like they need to be able to achieve to but they're like well okay this is the long-term goal you know how do you make everything inside that space look real for the person who was observing it um and so at least again when you say you know well what exactly are we aiming for that's that one sense we go cool at least we know what what are the researchers aiming for 
And it's another thing entirely going, is that what we need? Is that what Mm. we want? But at least that was a clear statement they were able to make of saying, here's what we think over the long run we want to keep fixing this tech to be able to do. And then, of course, at the end of the day, what Meta are really hoping to do is then work out how to make you pay, not just the headsets, but for everything you're doing within those VR worlds, that titular metaverse, um, including, you know, here we are once again, everything old is new again. Do you want to buy virtual Amani outfits for your legless floating avatar? Do you? Do you, Shams? You know, I would, I would have said no, but then I have to admit that when I've played a little bit of Fortnite sometimes, I think it was a Balenciaga outfit that I did look at once and go, that's actually kind of cool. Really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, Look, I think the the big version of that question that I keep coming up to, and it relates, I guess, back to the, you know, the Web3 aspects of the way people somehow keep trying to say that the metaverse and Web3 and all that is all going to be part of the one thing. And that's that it's like, I don't care if, like, let's say I did buy a fun outfit that I really like in Fortnite. I'm like, I don't see how commercially or in any business sense Other companies kind of say, well, yeah, you bought it over there, but now we're going to let you bring it over here, even though we never got a cut of that original sale or there's no real benefit to us building in support for a wildly diverse set of 3D models that we somehow have to make sure we can render in our game engine or whatever it is. Like all that kind of idea of, oh, you buy it once and you'll be able to use it anywhere thanks to Web3. And it's like, it just doesn't make commercial sense for all the companies that make stuff that, you know, they're just like, well, we'd rather sell you the $5 version of the same outfit over here than let you walk that outfit from one thing to another because we actually know people are pretty comfortable going, I want the cool thing in the thing I like to be in and I'll rebuy it three different times if I feel like I need to. Just as Nintendo and every generation of their consoles where they make people rebuy. Don't even bring it up. Don't even bring it up. Do you not get frustrated? How long have you been talking about things like this? But, you know, our our kind of background in tech journalism goes back quite a long way. I mean, mine back to the 90s, yours not a dissimilar time period. In the 90s, with the rise of the internet, you know, we had the transhumanists and the extropians and we talked about the next kind of leap in, in what human consciousness and existence was going to look like. And now we want to know how we can add more capitalism on top of the capitalism that's already kind of ruined everything we were trying to do in the first place. Like, oh, squeeze a bit more of the capitalism in and that should fix this round. I just, I'm kind of losing my mind over it. It's turning me into an absolute Marxist, which has never been my political philosophy ever, 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 ever. Yeah. Look, that really is quite fundamental to it, isn't it? It's like it's one thing to see all the arguments about um, ownership and all those kinds of things where you do go, well, that's all because someone just wants to sell or resell a thing. And you're right, back at the start of this whole internet thing, we loved that we were living in this age of infinite reproduction oh. and and now it's like, yeah, the cool kids are going, but but how how can I make it so people can't infinitely <laughs> produce or, or at least if you can, 
how can we make it cool to prove that you own the real one? <laughs> we, we wanted a world so without borders, we tried to invent an entirely new time that would be global. Do you remember Beat? Oh, my God. I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> a global yeah. time. We didn't even want time zones. Yes. <laughs> Oh, look, I've got a good um, a mild segue here. Speaking yeah, of, of overcharging for all sorts of things, um, I, you know, I've actually been quite enjoying uh, Diablo Immortal um, on really? my yeah, mobile lately. But uh, interestingly, it kind of feels like, you know, like there's clearly been a huge clash over, you know, the amount of money you have to pour into it in order to get to the highest, you know, tiers of gear and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's like it's been out for two weeks and my kind of alternate spin was simply I haven't played it that much. I'm actually not playing much of anything at the moment because I'm trying to make more room in my brain to write things. Um, <laughs> but I'm like as a game where I do kind of go, oh, I might spend 20 minutes just like, you know, beating up some stuff, getting my barbarian to, you know, spin whirlwind kind of frenzies amongst, you know, through some monsters. Um it's kind of like a really nice rendition of that style of action RPG on a mobile. Um, but it's kind of funny to then think, yeah, okay, there is, I think, a a pretty fair amount of heat when it comes to that mm. analysis of saying, okay, if you wanted to really max out your character right away, you know, it would cost about $100,000 to invest in all the like random systems that are required in order to, you know, give yourself the opportunity to earn the gear that you'd want to earn if you want to be the best in the world, all that kind of stuff. And then there's even a great case of a New Zealand streamer who uh, eventually finished at about 25000 New Zealand dollars uh, when he finally got his first five-star legendary to drop in the game, um, which wow. is really quite wild to think that, you know, I mean, it's one that thing is to... nearly $100 Australian. That's crazy. <laughs> We're probably yeah, on parody now, which is even more depressing. But yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, it's again, it's one thing for people to do the maths on paper and go $100,000 US would, you know, be what it would cost to get all the cool things. It's nothing to actually watch a streamer drop you know, five figures until they got one of the best items in the game. Um, and apparently they then destroyed the item after winning it in protest. Have you, in playing, hit points where it hits that pay to win? You, you know, have you found the lack of being willing to cash up problematic in the game? No. And apparently no. The, the kind of the big parts of where that, you know, I guess, where those whales are going to be attracted as they kind of obviously in those kinds of microtransaction games, they love to, you know, treat them like casino type people and they think of them as whales. It's in the PVP side of things that that's where people I think are feeling like the people who are willing to spend money are going to have the best gear and in PVP that's going to mean the most, you know. And so, you know, that sense of people feeling like, well, how could I even compete in PvP if I'm trying to just play this game for free? Um, and that's a side of most games I don't necessarily care that much about. And so yeah. I'm currently 
like I've been playing a barbarian. I'm about level 43. I think the max level is 50. And yeah, and then from there, there's a bunch of end game grind type stuff you can do. Whereas I've kind of been enjoying, there's a, a, you know, a reasonably pleasant Diablo story attached to the whole experience. So I can just play and do all the story quests and you can run some, you know, some rifts, which are basically the, you know, little kind of three to five minute dungeon runs where you just run in, bash some monsters until you face an end boss. And then you're out in five minutes and it might drop you a few cool things. And again, where I'm not in any way trying to play to be great at the game, um, I'm finding that as a, you know, as a game loop, a really fun thing to do in five minutes now and then. That actually does sound really, really fun. And look, I'm not immune to the lure of a good mobile game, nor spending money on it. Do not ever talk to me about Fallout Vault or whatever it was called. Um, that it cost me a small amount of cash when I got really into it at one point. Yeah, right. The a, lot, a lot of lunchboxes? A lot of lunchboxes. A lot of lunchboxes. I think it was because I got given some for free to begin with. I was like, oh, I really like this. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, I remember talking to the, the guys behind World of Tanks and their whole model back then, this again was many, many years ago, was they were like, there is nothing you can't do in this game for free. But if you would like to get there quicker, if you don't play very often, if you still want to accelerate, then there will be ways to buy yourself up those levels. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think it's actually not a bad way of doing it. You know, if, if you know, someone with a bit of spare cash thinks, well, I'm actually making this as a sensible decision because I don't have the three hours a night to grind this week, but I want to be here on the weekend, that's yeah. great. But, you know, if you are having to pay, if this is a Smurf Berries situation. Oh, um, my God. Yeah. I've yeah. forgotten all I'm about the Smurf Berries. I'm bringing them all out. <laughs> If it's a Smurf berries situation, then no, it's not okay. And, and, you know, loot boxes are their own issue. Um, you know, we know that they can hit that right kind of gambling urge for many people and be quite problematic. Um, they can certainly be very expensive for some people. Um, but, you know, it, it comes down to it. If you can still enjoy the game without having to pay, yeah, then that's good. And, yeah, let's talk about paying at the moment. I am paying for games again for the first time in, you know, I have been for a couple of years now, but, you know, there are 20-odd years where I did not have to buy my own games because I was reviewing or working in the right industry. Uh, games are bloody expensive. You know, you are dropping a huge amount of money even on a single-player game these days. Um, I don't know. Uh, I worry how that's not factored into a lot of reviews. That's not yep. factored you know, a lot of the ways we talk about games and it goes deeper. We look at like hardware and the way tech is reviewed. And I think maybe you and I could talk about that a little more in depth some other time about potentially whether the industry needs a bit of a reckoning on its relationship with uh, manufacturers and creators and providers. Um, but, you know, if you are, if you are getting a game for free as a mobile download or, uh, you know, a handful of bucks and are able to enjoy it, then, yeah, don't go and spend $25,000 New Zealand on it if you don't have to. Yeah. And, look, I hope at least that all the attention he got meant, you know, he got enough subs and things to to cover yeah. those. I, I feel like he probably did because he really did make worldwide news when he first hit ten grand and hadn't gotten a single five-star legendary. And then the fact that it was like, and it was only when he got to about twenty-five grand that it got there. But that's it. It's like I think it's look, both sides, right? It's one of those crazy times where we, we kind of get to, I think, legitimately sit on the fence and say both sides of this argument 
are fair, you know, that if you really want to get into this and you really want to play hard and you want to be, you know, on that leaderboard, then it's fair to feel disappointed when you do those calculations and realise that that is a mess of a situation to have to deal with. I mean, the flip side, I think, within that same domain is almost saying if it's that hard to get like a five-star legendary gem drop, um, then maybe it's almost one of those things are saying it's so hard that actually you shouldn't be chasing it. You should just be playing the game and not thinking, well, within the first two weeks of it coming out, I should have gotten one of these. Instead going, maybe I should just relax into this game. It's going to be around for a long time and I'll just have some fun. Yeah. Um, But that's it. I can feel like everybody has a bit of a a fair argument there. Um, And then today's big news about Diablo Immortal, total aside before we move on to other things, it was meant to launch in China later this week. It was co-produced with NetEase as their kind of Chinese partner, and they did a lot of the game development for the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've delayed the launch uh, due to some, uh, I believe, like quality of uh, performance issues. Um, But the thing that's come out today is that uh, the Diablo Immortal account on Weibo has been stopped from posting, and apparently... In late May, there was some very weird post that said, um, why hasn't the bear stepped down? And it has been interpreted as a Winnie the Pooh reference, oh, a.k.a. a G no, reference. No, no, no. And oh. you're like, you were, this game was all about launching into the Chinese market. Oh. How on earth is something like this? happened oh that's ridiculous like anyone knows that that's a no-no anyone i know that's a no-no yeah you know it's the kind of scenario that does make you sort of stop and think okay look i there is nothing about you know the chinese media situation that i agree with but if you're a company that's about to launch sit there what how did this slip through it's insane no it's absolutely crazy just before we move off games um because I've decided I, I'm rebelling against paying full price for games. Uh, there's a bunch of things I really, really want to play, but I refuse to unless I'm alerted that they're on sale. Uh, so I've kicked off, oh boy, um, I've kicked off a brand new Skyrim run through just on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> like the 400 hours I sank into it years ago wasn't enough for me. Uh, I need to do it again. And I'm really enjoying it. In that Skyrim way, I'm already discovering stuff I never found before. It's insane. That's spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Look, as I've said, I'm in my, I'm not really playing anything at the moment, but I did, but the one thing that I'm keeping logging in for each day is actually Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, I think of all the MMOs that I've enjoyed playing and I've played Final Fantasy uh, 14 as well for a good chunk late Ooh. last year um, and Elder Scrolls and World of Warcraft, of course, but I've like stopped World of Warcraft at the moment, stopped Final Fantasy and um, there's a really nice daily login system on Elder Scrolls Online that just means, you know, you just pop in and it's like here's your free thing for the day and it's just little things like, you know, nice kind of food buffs and 
um, you know, experience scrolls and different bits and pieces. Um, and the monthly calendar of that is nice. And actually, it's kind of probably a good counterpoint to the, you know, Devil Immortal type stuff we're talking about where uh, the first three weeks of the month is where Elder Scrolls will give you um, like the best stuff for the month. So around that 21-day mark is where it'll often have like a really cool special oh. thing available. But then after that, it will be like here's just more like food or XP scrolls or whatever. Like it won't hold out on you that it's like you have to have logged in every day for the whole month if you want the coolest login benefits. It's more like, hey, if you logged in most days this month, then you can have, you know, this cool thing. Like it might be a new a new emote or a new outfit that you can put on your character or whatever it might be. Um, but I kind of like that. And so, I, yeah, it, it's one of those nice things at least makes me feel like I'm in touch with a game without actually doing anything more than two minutes to log in, press a button and then log out. And I'm, I actually kind of enjoyed that feeling even when I'm going, I'm not really playing anything right now. Nothing more infuriating than feel like, oh, I've got to fire it up. There, there we go. Collect, collect, collect. Don't have time to play. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Um, before I have to go and feed two very, very needy uh, rescue cats, are we watching at the moment? Because I am absolutely all in on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Cool. No, I have it not is- yet. Look, I have not spun up a Paramount subscription yet, so I'm yet to. But I, the more and more recommendations I'm hearing, the more I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to switch this on, aren't I? It is exactly the the Star Trek I needed. Um, I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, it's great sensibilities, um, bringing in the particularly cool politics that have been an element of Star Trek all the way through, uh, while some very uh, old school jokes and uh, some familiar characters. I'm absolutely loving it. And uh, I just binged both episodes of The Wilds, which I haven't oh. quite of. I was a massive Yellow Jackets fan, so I thought, great, here's another TV show, Teen Girls on a Plague Crash Surviving on a Desert Island, uh, but not the one you'd expect and shot around Australia and New Zealand as well. John Polson directed a bunch of episodes, of course, the man who was the mind behind Tropfest here in Australia, but also a great actor and director in his own right. Uh, Rachel Griffiths um, is absolutely villainous the whole way through it. And lots and lots of, um, I love to call them crypto Aussies, where you're like, hey, that's a weird American accent. Where are you from? Oh, Canberra. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. Um, Yeah, yeah, what am I? Oh, yeah, sorry. Was there something else? No. The two main things? Yeah, my two main things. I don't have much time for anything else with Skyrim now. (laughs) Yes. Um, We are in, we've been in catch-up mode on a few things. So um, personally, I've been in catch-up mode on Better Call Saul to try to catch up ahead of the final, uh, again, it's one of those second half of the final season drops Mm -hmm. coming in Mm -hmm. coming months, right? Um, And then we've also been catching up on Stranger Things, uh, again, to to be up to speed. and I think we're literally like one or two episodes off finishing the current uh, part one of the, the final season. Um, and that's kind of been its own interesting journey because, uh, you know, there was always that sense back in the Harry Potter days where it's like, you know, the books got more, it got darker as the, they got older and towards the end of school. Um, and, you know, and Stranger Things has become more and more like genuine oh, yeah. horror moments. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's kind of been 
fun to actually explore that with the kids who are, you know, thankfully <laughs> ready for it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite, you know, quite interesting how they've happily really started pushing some of those, yeah, horror moments uh, further and further in that show. Um, As someone who did play D&D in high school in 1986 where the new season is uh, and, and remembers a lot of that satanic panic, it was never as big a deal in Australia as it was in the US, but certainly the stories arrived and as a D&D player you heard it. It oddly rings true in many, many ways. I've really enjoyed that season. Yeah, I've, we have had the conversations with our kids about it because, of course, we play D&D here at home. So I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, there was a time when people really did used to talk about it like we were somehow joining cults. You know, I had one of my best friends at school who had someone sidle up to him and hand him uh, the Dark Dungeons uh, notorious Dark little... Cheap tract? Dark Dungeons? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, and, of course, talking about please go and, you know, go and repent and then go and burn the books at oh. your nearest book burning, you know, like it was. One around the corner. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, freaky, freaky stuff at the time. Um, but, you know, and so, yeah, it's just that funny thing of, and I've seen a few articles around of even, you know, people writing up the, you know, was that a thing? And it's like, yes, it was, <laughs> especially as you say, especially in small town America, that was, yeah, a really big thing for nerds to suddenly be like, wait, we're already getting bullied and, now people are actually blaming us for horrible things <laughs> like Jesus. Um, but what else? Yeah, I mean, I've been loving catching up on Better Call Saul, excited for the end of that. Um, I have not finished the new season of Barry yet, um, but, you know, that starts quite interestingly, definitely a bit darker than past seasons have been. Um, so excited to finish that one off. And what else? Um no, that's probably about it right now. I, I actually, actually, you know what? My big recommendation right now for mm. something, and it's a long watch um, in the sense that it is live play role-playing, but Critical Role has just finished a four-week special event. Um, it's kind of they did one last summer in the US, and this is you know a new one. It's called Exandria Unlimited Calamity, and the idea is that it's set in this moment in the history of the Critical Role world, which is notorious for the fact that, you know, basically the world almost like split in two. It was, you know, this moment where somebody tried to become a god and in the process like absolutely wrecked this kind of, you know, heightened era of magical enlightenment uh, for the world. Um, and so as a four-week special, they've, you know, got guest performers. It's a guest dungeon master who's worked closely with Matthew Mercer to kind of write this four-part story. You know, it ends with everybody dying, which kind of is always fun in a D&D context where they've told this beautiful story over four weeks, incredible performances, incredible game mastering, like just a really great example of, you know, how good watching live play D&D um, can be and the fact that it's just a nicely packaged up four parts and that it ends with such a dramatic finale is awesome and it's definitely one of those times where you go okay yeah if you've never watched this sort of thing I think you know each one is what like four hours so as much as you go it's only four parts it's like that is about 20 hours of, oh boy. <laughs> of viewing oh boy. 
<laughs> um, but it's really, really so well put together. And I think it's a total testament for the world building, you know, of, you know, Matthew Mercer and what he's created. But then I guess as well, his willingness to let people kind of come over and, you know, go, you know, handing it over a little bit and letting some other people perform one of these biggest moments in the history of the game. Um, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful thing well worth uh, checking out. Oh, well, fascinating. Awesome. Well, I should let you go and feed those cats. Um, you know, for those listening to the audio version, there have been cat visitors on the video. You should go and have a look. <laughs> so many cats. So many cats. The bane of my existence, the love of my life, all wrapped in one. Shannon Spoon, this has been fun. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, look, it's been really fun to do it again, and I'm sure we'll do a far less messy version as we work out what we're doing. <laughs> Maybe it won't be in video ever again. Anyway, thank you so much. Thanks for anybody who tuned in. Thank you again, Nick, and we'll catch you again soon.